This is Special Report. Neil Armstrong may have seen extraterrestrials on the moon. When he spies a discernible shape. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. You can deny all the things I've seen. All the things I've discovered, but not for much longer. Because too many others know what's happening out there. And no one, no government agency has jurisdiction over the truth. Welcome, everybody, to Full Spectrum Universe. My name is Rob Yox, and with knowledge and passion, nothing is off limits here at Full Spectrum Universe. We have an incredible show for you tonight. We have a special guest, a person I've been chomping at the bit to talk to. He is a international speaker a researcher. He is a best-selling author. This man has so much information to give out to the public and the universe itself. I am so excited that he's here. We're honored and privileged. Uh, just to let you know who he is, if you don't know who he is, you probably live under a rock, but the gentleman's name is Paul Wallace. He is an author of the international bestseller, Escaping from Eden, and soon to be another bestseller is The Scars of Eden. He is a popular speaker, researcher, and author of books on spirituality and mysticism. As a senior churchman, he has served as a church doctor, theological educator, and an archdeacon in the Anglican Church of Australia. Today, he, he, his work probes the world's mythology and ancestral narratives for their insight into the human origins, human potential, and our place in the cosmos. What an amazing show it is. So let's bring him in. Hello, Paul. How are you, my friend? G'day, Rob. Thanks for having me on your show today. I'm really good. How are you going? I am absolutely ecstatic that you're here. Uh, uh, thank you so much. It is an honor and a privilege to talk to you. Uh, like I said before, I've you know, been waiting to talk to you so we can get into some really deep conversation. And this is just going to be one of those days for me that's just going to be such an epic moment, you know? Uh, last time I felt like this is when I was talking to uh, Michael Cremo at Forgery Unmasked and, you know, we got to speak too. So it was really great. And, you know, with, for people like you, you know, I look up to people like you because I aspire to do what you're doing now and writing books and, and teaching people and researching at the level that you do. So one thing I want to do is let everybody know that, you know, the scars of Eden is available right now. And Paul, this book has sold out in some countries already. Has it not? Oh, yes. It it was the same with Escaping from Eden. I think with Escaping from Eden, we sold out three times in the first two weeks. And the same is happening with Scars of Eden, but the suppliers are working really well. You go put your order in. In a matter of days, the copy will be with you. But yes, we have hit the ground running with the Scars of Eden. Ooh, so amazing. So amazing. And you, everybody knows that they can get the book at... Uh, paulanthonywallace.com. I'm sure it's also on Amazon and everywhere else. So guys, make sure you go out there and buy both, you know, Escaping from Eden and The Scars of Eden because they do intertwine on a lot of levels. And it is so, it's such an incredible story and you have such a great take on things. So, you know, before we start talking about the book, 
for people who may not know you, which I don't believe that there's many out there who don't at this point, tell the people how you got started. You know, what, what exactly brought you back to this lifestyle of researching this, you know, our origins, what's out there, what's going on? Where was that moment for you? Well, for me, the seed was sown, I think, when I was about 11 years old, or maybe even earlier. If I go back to when I was five years old, and I was at a church school in the UK, and I remember a moment when the headmistress said, Mrs. Clark's class are going to come in and teach us all a new hymn. And so Mrs. Clark, who was the one teacher who could play the piano, came in with her class and they started to teach us this hymn that began with the words, when Jesus was a little boy. And the hymn went on to explain that when Jesus was a little boy, he was perfect. He was good as gold. He did everything his parents told him and everything his teachers told him. And so children should you. And that was the message of the hymn. And at five years old, I remember sitting there thinking, this is ridiculous. They're just trying to get us to toe the line. And I went home and I remember talking to my dad, who I think was sort of abstractedly reading a newspaper and, you know, having one of those half-conscious conversations with the kid that all us parents do from time to time. And I said, you know, these people, they talk about God, but they haven't met him. They don't know what he's like. He could be a giant green dragon for all they know. And I think my dad just said, yes, yes, that's right. And I think that was the first moment I can remember when I just started questioning the stories and explanations I was being provided with. I, I had a suspicion of institutional religion from that age because I could see how it was being used at my school. And then when I was 11, my mum and dad introduced me to the work of Eric von Daniken. And I felt that he really aptly put his finger on a gap in our ability to explain ourselves as the alpha species on planet Earth. Again, I was hearing the two tracks of story. I was hearing the orthodox Christian explanation and the scientific explanation. The religious answer says that we are special because we're God's special creation. He made us in charge here. But that failed to explain for me why it's so obvious that we're a kind of animal. If we are a unique special creation, how come it's obvious that we're, we're a kind of animal and we're very similar to the apes? And then the scientific, well, there was a gap there because I don't know about you, Rob, but if I was left living in the wild with no resources uh, after three days, three nights, I would probably be sick, deceased or in hospital. The only reason we can survive is because we've got technology. If I can light a fire, I'm okay. If I can build a shelter, I'm okay. But science couldn't quite understand where this higher intelligence, higher consciousness and technology came from in our evolution as a species. Eric von Daniken identified that gap. And he said that it made sense to explore the possibility that there were external interventions in our evolution that gave us a boost in those regards. Now, he wasn't the first person to say it. Two and a half thousand years ago, Plato was saying exactly the same thing, that we were evolving away on planet Earth 
but there were external interventions from other species who upgraded our ancestors to have a greater capacity for consciousness and intelligence. So the story's been out there for a long time. Age 11, I'd never heard of Plato, but I had heard of Chariots of the Gods. And that sort of sat in the back of my mind from that age onwards. And in a funny way, those wanderings and searchings actually led me to become a Christian when I was 17 years old. And I was 33 years involved, as you mentioned earlier, in Christian ministry as a church doctor, archdeacon for the Anglican Church, a theological educator, training pastors in how to interpret ancient texts, the science of hermeneutics. And it was really through that process of engaging with the Bible over those decades and recognizing there are some anomalies in those texts, things that don't quite fit with these familiar stories we tell ourselves of where we all came from. And it was just a matter of time really before I had the opportunity to pause from my busy schedule of work, go back to those anomalies, realize that they are essentially translation issues and as I drilled down into the translation questions, that's what led me onto this territory I'm on today of studying our ancestors' contact with extraterrestrials, because I found that is the story hidden in plain sight, not only in the Bible, but in world mythology and ancestral narratives all around the world. So in a funny roundabout way, it was Eric von Daniken, Christian theology, the Bible, that led me onto this whole topic of paleo contact and looking at who we really are, the truth of our origins, what our potential is, and what our place is in the cosmos today. That's incredible. And, you know, you got to speak to a lot of these people and interview a lot of these people on, you know, Fifth Kind TV. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. How was it, you know, really getting to sit down with some of the people that you looked up to for so long, like I'm doing now? You know, you got to do with Eric Mondanik and so many of these great minds. What was that like? What was that experience like to you? Well, it was a wonderful experience sitting down with Eric Mondanik because uh, he'd never spoken to me before, but I felt like I knew him because he'd been in my head since I was uh, 11 years old. And I'd somewhat followed his career. And I feel a great warmth to Eric because, firstly, because of what he did, that he broke the taboo on these questions and he made the subject of our ancestors' contact with ETs part of mainstream conversation. I mean, when I was at school, kids would talk about this in the playground. My parents would talk about this at dinner parties, and that was because of Eric von Daniken. He wasn't the first person to propose paleo contact or the idea that our evolution had been interfered with, but he was the person who brought that into mainstream popular conversation. And for all his detractors, I think we just have to take our hats off to him for doing that, taking the flak, weathering the storm, and blazing that trail for us. So I was excited for that reason, and I was really intrigued to ask him some questions as a fellow researcher about how to occupy this space, because very often it's writers and researchers like you and me, Rob, who come in from the outside of academia and we start challenging academia for the stories that they're telling us. And we're pitching ourselves against people who've got PhDs 
coming out of their ears. And it could be a little bit intimidating. And I wanted to know how Eric von Daniken had navigated that space. And I loved what his reply was. He said, it has to be that way, that innovation is very rarely going to come in a radical way from within peer-reviewed academia because everyone thrives on each other's approval and depends on tenure and all those sorts of things. So it has to be the people outside, the writers, the researchers who bring topics to the table from the outside, who will write a book that they can then all discuss. And that's how they get in on the conversation. That's how things move forward. And you have to be willing to occupy that space. And he has done that in such a way that people with PhDs coming out of their ears go to him and they provide him with their information, their material. And he says, oh, this is wonderful. This confirms what I thought. I'll put this in the next book and I'll cite you. And they always say, no, 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 don't quote me. <laughs> I could lose my job. And I said to Eric, doesn't that frustrate you that people will support you privately but not publicly? And he said, no, absolutely not. I always honor that because that is where I get so much of my information from. Why would I kill those relationships? Why would I kill that supply of information? This is an arrangement that moves the conversation forward. And so it was just the personal aspect that I found especially enjoyable of uh, meeting Eric von Daniken. Uh, and it just felt at one level, I was really nervous and excited and another, the most natural thing in the world. I should be sitting down talking to him about these subjects, having had his words in my mind for so long. It's so, it's so great too. And, you know, you talk about peers and how that, you know, how they, they look at what you do. So we have George Nori said that this is the, this generation's, you know, escaping from Eden is hailed as this generation's chariots of the gods. What was that like to you to get that kind of reaction from such a name like George Nori? Well, firstly, I was thrilled that George Nori was willing to put his name on the cover of my book with an endorsement because I love what he does. I love how he maintains this space where people can come and make these kinds of contributions. And then when I went on Coast to Coast and heard him say those words, well, it was pretty hard for me to stay focused on the rest of the interview because <laughs> that's just like being given a chunk of gold for George well, Norrie to imagine. say that. And I, it excited me because I believe every generation needs gateway books to open this topic to a wider audience. And that's really the purpose of the scars of Eden and escaping from Eden, that you could give these books to anybody with a zero interest in the topic or someone who gives it zero credibility, and it should take them from zero to realizing, oh my goodness, there's something serious here for me to give my attention to. And I find it surprises me how many people are awake to this topic, but then also how many people are completely unaware, they've never thought of it before, and they're embarrassed talking about it. And we're back in the place, 50 years after Chariots of the Gods, where a lot of people need a gateway book like this to say, hey, look at this. Start asking some questions and start looking at this stuff that is really interesting, that we need answers for, and that might potentially reframe our whole understanding 
of the cosmos. So that quote, this generation's chariots of the gods, excited me because it's about being a gateway writer for a new generation. And that's really my heart. That's so important, too. It's so important. Even now in the comments, we have a gentleman by the name of Drew saying, congratulations, Paul. You are this generation's Eric Von Daniken. I would have to agree. I would have to agree. And you know what? You know, there, Like you said, there's these gateways and there's these, uh, I don't want to call them glass ceilings, but you know, with a book like yours, you break this glass ceiling and, and you get to an audience that would maybe not normally read these types of books. And it's fundamentally so important for us to understand where we came from, what exactly happened? Because a lot of mainstream, they don't go into these topics. I don't know if it's because they feel like they're convoluted, but you know, it, it, the thing about this is that we, when you do your research, we see from the Bible that a lot of these stories were told over vast civilizations, over vast periods of time. And it's like a hodgepodge of all these things that we see from different areas of the world. What was your experience like looking at all these different areas and finding this commonality in all, from all these different civilizations? Well, that was the thing that really drew me in. I began, as I say, looking at the Bible and doing some translation work and realizing there's another story here because making some translation switches, it's like brushing revealer over invisible ink and all of a sudden the story is plain. It's not just that a new story emerges, but that that story is so clearly the summary form of the Mesopotamian stories about sky people visiting our planet in the distant past, colonizing us, engineering our ancestors. It's there in the Sumerian, Babylonian, Arcadian, and Assyrian stories. And what's in the Bible is derived from that. And that becomes obvious very, very quickly. That information has been out there for about 186 years but it's taken a while to percolate into the public consciousness, hence the scars of Eden, hence escaping from Eden. And that would have been interesting enough. That was really my red pill. I couldn't go back and read those texts the old way after I'd seen this correlation, but it then sent me on a journey all around the world. And I started reading the ancestral narratives that come out of Mesoamerica and Africa and the Norse countries, and India, and Celtic societies, Native American, Aboriginal Australian. And the correlation of the stories is so uncanny, and very often the overlap is on really fine points of detail. And sometimes you're reading what are clearly different cultures' explanations of something that is remembered visually. Their ancestors saw something and they reached for these metaphors, this language to express it. But you read the narrative side by side and you realize they saw the same thing. And it was those correlations that convinced me we need to listen to world mythology and ancestral narrative a little bit differently. Not reading it uh, as fable or moral tale because the stories don't work that way, least of all the ones in the Bible and not reading it as uh, in a fundamental way, as if you're reading like um, diary entries or scientific account, this happened, then this happened, but asking the question, what is the memory that this story carries? 
And as I realized, it's the same memory of the same cataclysm, the same visitors, the same rehabilitation of the planet, the same engineering of our ancestors, the same attacks on human progress. That is what convinced me I've got to get this information out. I've got to share this journey. Uh, and that's what led to escaping from Eden and then the scars of Eden. That's incredible. That's incredible. After this question, we're going to get into the book. But what this is a kind of an odd question, too. While doing your research, what was something that you didn't expect to find that you did find while doing your research? Some people, you know, when you're looking at so many different uh, civilizations, sometimes something's just like smack you in the face. And they're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What? You know what I mean? What was something like that for you while doing all of this research? I think the first big surprise was to realize that if I wanted to find any kind of scientific corroboration of these ideas, that if I went to neurology or DNA research, I would find scientists around the world actually willing to step up and point to the anomalies. And most especially in DNA research, where you've got people of the standing of Francis Crick the co-discoverer of the double helix of DNA, or a contemporary researcher in that field, such as Maxim Makukov of the Fezenkov Astrophysical Institute, who are willing to put their names to the theory of panspermia, which is the theory that says that life is the norm in the cosmos, not the exception, and that the genetic coding for biological conscious intelligent life has actually been disseminated throughout at least this part of the cosmos, and that whenever it lands on a hospitable planet, meaning a planet with water, it will generate forms of life similar to with those we're familiar with on planet Earth. They put their name to this theory, they believe it, they assert it, Francis Crick asserted it from the very beginning, and to discover that the European Space Agency has spent billions of dollars testing that theory by sending probes up onto comets, well, you don't spend billions of dollars unless you really think there's something you might find. So the credibility that's given to that idea, I didn't know about before I started writing Escaping from Eden. And it was one of those things that gave me a lot of courage to keep moving forward. That's, that's incredible. I mean, I love those types of, you know, little nuggets of information when you but that's a big nugget. That's not a little one. That's a big one. You've got mainstream science coming through and really telling you about, you know, all the things that you've that you're talking about. It's, it's so incredible. It's such a journey. You know, this this journey for you must have been completely uh, you know, at a base level just alters your your vision of what is out there, the earth, our past, all of this all of these different aspects coming together. It must have been so great once you finally compiled all your information together, which, of course, like you said, the, is the book, is the book, which is so awesome. It's, it requires a lot of reframing. So there was no real single moment where everything clicked and focused and everything made sense. It was a, this clicked, oh my goodness, that's clear. Well, what are the implications for this? Okay, that, well, what are the implications for this? And as I was writing, I was thinking, this could end up being a book about everything because the knock-on effects are so enormous. And I really had to be quite disciplined of saying, let me just stick to my thread here, my logic, 
the evidence I've got in front of me. And I do try and stay grounded in talking about this because you, you asked earlier why do people struggle to get into this conversation if they're academics, for instance. And on the one hand, it's because um, there's a ridicule giggle factor around ho the whole topic of ETs. Uh, and another is that they want to talk about things that have got a, an evidentiary basis. They don't want to just be speculating and comparing thought against thought. But the thing that grounds me in the conversation is that my starting point is the documentary evidence that our ancestors have given us, the oral traditions that have survived for thousands of years, and keep returning to them and saying, what does that mean? What memory does it hold? And look at all these correlations between what our ancestors said thousands of years ago and what a cutting edge 21st century DNA researcher like Maxim Kukov is saying. Could that correlation mean something? And it's those kinds of questions that, that give the energy to my research. So great. It's so great. And, you know, I keep saying that, but it really like I enjoy it so much. So, you know, in this new in the, in the new book. Let's get to, you know, a question that we have here. So in the new book, The Scars of Eden, it claims that our ancestry knowledge of, the, of ET contact was deliberately suppressed. So what makes you think that and how did that happen, that suppression? Well, that suppression uh, has happened in many ways uh, through the centuries and millennia, sometimes by accident, sometimes quite deliberately. And the first example I would go to is the story of the evolution of the Bible and the development of the Hebrew canon, what we might call the Old Testament. And there's a fairly broad scholarly agreement as to what the process was of the gathering of those writings and a very broad scholarly agreement that the current form was taken in about the 6th century BCE when a group of Jewish theologians editors, redactors, got hold of the whole canon of scrolls and books that made up the Hebrew canon and said, we're going to rework this so that it's a unified piece teaching the theology of Judaism. And the, and the central point of Judaism is there is only one God, and by God we mean the source of the cosmos. And so they take that name, their holy name, for that concept of God, and then they paste it over all of the stories going right back to the earliest stories in the canon. The problem with that is that the earliest stories are stories of Elohim. And though they decided to translate that word as God in those early stories, the word Elohim really means the powerful ones, plural beings. The Elohim is really the ancient Hebrew name for what the Sumerians called the sky people. So now you've got stories that originally were about various sky people warring with each other over Project Earth, retold as the story of a single being developing life on Earth. And it doesn't quite work. And this is where some of the anomalies come from, of God making mistakes or failing to anticipate the obvious or changing his mind, creating humans, then destroying them. Uh, wanting them ignorant and then bombing their civilization when it gets too technological, it doesn't quite add up. And those anomalies are the clues that there's been an airbrushing. 
that has almost obliterated the ET narrative. But really, it's, it's still there if you look for it. You go to the Ten Commandments given by Moses, and it begins, you shall have no other powerful ones before me. Don't bow down to them. Don't even depict them. Serve, work for only Yahweh. And in that moment, there's an acknowledgement that there are these other entities out there governing over other human colonies. Well, what's that? And then you get to his successor, Joshua, and he puts out a call. He says, don't work for the powerful ones your ancestors served in Mesopotamia. Don't work for the powerful ones of the Egyptians or the Amorites. As for me and my household, we will work only for Yahweh. But the story rolls on and you can see these other powerful ones are out there and they're in competition with one another. Well, this is all very mystifying until you do the translation work and realize we're reading of a time when human societies were governed over by ET entities who conflicted with one another, almost airbrushed out, but not quite. You get to the beginning of Christianity and there was a big tussle over what to do with the Hebrew canon. Should that be part of a Christian Bible? Should the church re-endorse this sixth century edit of the old stories of the Elohim that turned them into God's stories? And there were significant church fathers who said, absolutely not, because the Elohim stories are not about God, they're about something else. And the church fathers who said that were Clement of Alexandria, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Marcion, uh, and they were not fringy people by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Origen was one of them, and he is considered the father of hermeneutics, the science of biblical interpretation. Irenaeus is the guy who came up with the phrase, the nomenclature for Old Testament and New Testament. So they were central people who were saying the Elohim stories are stories of another kind of being. But unfortunately, those guys were gradually pushed to the side as orthodoxy narrowed down. And so by 144 of the Common Era, Marcion had been excommunicated, declared a heretic. He had a massive following all across Eastern Europe. And yet we can't find a single page of what he wrote because it all got lost. We can piece it together from what his detractors had to say about him. And then similarly with Origen, he was ultimately declared a heretic. And by the time the Roman Empire has taken over the church and the church has become the imperial department of religion and the emperor is now making rulings on theological questions, orthodoxy has been militarized. And so everything that's not on the syllabus is pushed out. The teachers of other stories of origins are considered heretics. Not only that, but they're potentially enemies of the state because they're sowing discord into the empire. And that is why Nag Hammadi became a place where documents like the Gnostic Gospels were buried. They were buried for their protection because these other narratives were flying off the shelves of public libraries. People wouldn't have them in their private libraries. They were being destroyed. And the ones in the Nag Hammadi Desert were there to stop them being destroyed, to preserve these other stories about human origins. I'll give you one more example of the suppression. Um, well, a very quick one. 1600, Giordano Bruno burned alive in public in the most brutal way as a message to Christians across Europe 
not to suggest that there might be intelligent life on other planets, which is what he had been doing. And you only need a few moments like that for the message to go out, this is, this is off topic, this is off the syllabus. But you look at what happened when the Catholic forces of Portugal and Spain went into Central and South America. Mm -hmm. They went in with letters patent from the kings of Portugal and Spain and the Pope to use whatever force was required to subdue those countries and take them for the church. And when they went in, they went in with their holy book and they set up their churches and schools to, to tell the true story of the universe, who we are, where we came from. And all other stories were extinguished. No one else was to have a voice or an alternative narrative. And they took that so seriously that they burned the ancient texts of Central and South America to get rid of those other stories. And they executed the priesthoods so there would be no fake news in the new Christianized Central and South America. Except those texts were not wholly destroyed. Obviously, some choice copies were sent to the Vatican Library, the kings of Portugal and Spain. Mm -hmm. Nobody else, though, was to have a copy. And they believed they had replaced the old stories with the new stories, except what that had actually done, similar to the Gnostic Gospels, there were a few copies that survived. And there were now secret societies of priests whose job was to keep those documents hidden until it was safe for those stories to resurface. And about 170 years uh, after Spain went into Peru, for instance, the story resurfaces. Guatemala was sent a priest called Francisco Jimenez, a Dominican friar, who was a very sincere priest and a scholar. And he won the trust of the people he lived among who were descendants of the ancient Mayans. And some secret priests came to him with a document and they said, this is our story of origins, if you're interested. And he was. And he translated it into Spanish. And it became the Popol Vuh, the people's book, telling a totally different story of who we are and where we came from. But it absolutely correlates with the right translation, as I argue, of the Hebrew texts and the Sumerian and the Greek and the Norse and the Indian, African, all these indigenous stories that have survived around the world that have never made it into the textbooks that had never become the scientific normal story. And yet the local culture remembers and finds ways of preserving these stories. And that's, that's the journey the Scars of Eden takes, going around the world, listening to what our ancestors had to say and realizing they presented a coherent picture. You know, what's great about all this, too, is, you know, we always use the terminology that history repeats itself. So when these heretics were getting cast out into, you know, burnt at the stake or whenever they executed them, it's it's sort of indicative of what happens now with the ostracization of what they say to be radical ideas. They call them heretics back then. They call people like us conspiracy theorists and they 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 denigrate these these ideas but what you're talking about is so prevalent throughout those cultures uh, across the entire planet that for them to sit there and basically call these people heretics is doing a disservice to humanity and it's a way for them to keep people under their thumb and yeah. the control of everything so it's it's really really it wild is. you know when you hear that we do have a uh a question from Omar, 
who's in the audience. He says, Paul, you mentioned in the Scars of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2, the planet is terraformed following a catastrophe, which has which has flooded as, as the reference to Genesis 1-6, the water canopy. Oh, yes. Yes, the water canopy is a really intriguing feature of that story. I'll go somewhere slightly different, though, and point out that in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we've got a number of stories of beginnings, a number of stories that seem to suggest a planetary cataclysm and a reset of civilization. So Genesis 1 is 1 because we're looking at a planet that's been devastated, it's flooded, it's shrouded in darkness, and then this ruach, this craft, it's translated as the spirit of God, but the word really means a craft, arrives and begins terraforming the planet. Uh, a story you can read in the Philippines, you can hear in Nigeria. It retells the same story of, of vortices of wind being used to clear land. So that's, that's one moment. Then we've got another flood narrative in Genesis 6. And then we've got another reset of civilization in Genesis 11. And so you ask, are these different recollections of the same cataclysm and the same reset? Or are we hearing about a sequence of resets? And if we are, is all of this human memory? Is all of this going back to our most recent cataclysm of about 10,000 years ago, the, um, the aftermath of the Younger Dryas Cold period? Or are we hearing memories from what was here before, because it's quite possible that civilized life on Earth goes way, way back into geological time, in which case the whole structure of the planet might have been quite different to what we know today. And I'm beginning to think that that is the case, that we've got the cultural memory of Homo sapiens going back about 10,000 years in these stories. And then we've got memories that have been carried from previous civilizations to us. And so it puts on the table some huge questions about what kind of planet Earth we're reading about, what shape the continents had in that moment. There's a really intriguing verse, for instance, a couple of them in Genesis 9 and Genesis 11, that would appear to be talking about the separation of the continents. Aboriginal Australians have a story that seems to refer to the separation of continents. Well, by conventional science, that's not possible. We couldn't possibly have a cultural memory or even knowledge of that because that's geological time. Homo sapiens wasn't here. But what if someone else was here? And what if the chain of civilization on Earth is far, far longer? And so some of these more far-reaching questions uh, suddenly become discussable the moment you raise that possibility. It's so true. It's so true, you know, and there's so much, there's so many connections and so many connections. And then Omar also asks, I know it's kind of like a follow-up question. I like to take the, you know, people out there's questions too. He says, does this have any connection to the root races, the seven root races? Basically the Genesis verses, I believe that that is. And yes, 
Go on. No, no, no. That was it. I thought it was more to it, but it wasn't. I was reading it. But go ahead. It's a really intriguing question. Um, the different races, as we call them. Of course, um, it's not races in a technical sense because we can all breed with each other, except, oh, wait a minute, there are two distinct groups in terms of blood type, two groups of humans. Uh, but that difference of blood type doesn't correlate with the things we perceive as racial differences today. I have sometimes wondered myself if we're looking at a story of Homo sapiens sapiens that might have a number of different start points and a number of different genetic engineering maestros involved in bringing Homo sapiens uh, into the state that we're familiar with. It's an idea that fascinates me, but as yet, I have not found any kind of DNA evidence that would corroborate that notion. Um, if we're looking for parallels between information from DNA research and information from our ancestors, that's not where we'll find a correlation. One place we'll find it is in the consensus that there was a bottleneck on the human population at one point and a repopulation from a single family, bearing in mind that that single family uh, would have had the DNA information of many, many families built into it. Uh, and that's a moment that I think is really well worth looking at, whether, whether all the races on the planet come from that bottleneck. Well, it looks like it by the question of these blood types. So it's a really complex arena. There isn't the evidence to support different genetic engineers producing different humanities. That's just not in our DNA information today. But the picture is complicated even further by more recent finds of various kinds of hominins in our more recent past and the realization that there were more kinds of human being than we've previously given credit for. When I was at school, the story of human evolution was very simple. We began as ape-like creatures, and then bit by bit, we improved and improved and improved until you arrive at the white European-looking guy in the textbook. Uh, we now know that's not the case at all. There were far more kinds of human on the planet our ancestors have stories that have recollection of some of these neighbors. There is evidence that we simply bred with each other and it became a huge melting pot, but evidence that others just got extincted out or were out-competed out of the picture. But it means that now we're looking at a whole load of questions that weren't on the table a generation ago about our origins. And I find that very exciting. And I think that's a really nice way of opening a whole new conversation up. Well, it definitely is. And I'm not sure if you've heard that they actually found a burial site of a 78,000 year old uh, child. You know, whenever we look at these uh, record mainstream records of history, they only go back 12,500 years. We know that to be completely debunked as they would say in their own words, but they've just found this. But, you know, I think it's really interesting when you say that. One of the things I want to go back to is the extraterrestrials themselves. You know, why 
would they be so involved with this planet with hybridization and you know and, and abductions and things like that what is drawing them to this planet you think i think different et demographics have come here for different reasons if we start in our ancestral narratives there would be a number that would suggest that some came here uh, for the minerals that planet Earth had to offer and that they employed our ancestors as miners. Now, some people find that absolutely ridiculous. Why would a high-tech species need to do mining? People baffle at that. And why would they use human beings rather than machines? Well, I don't know. I'm just saying that's what our ancestors said. I mean, we use animals, we have used cattle, we've used horses, we've used dogs, and these ETs used humans. That's what the stories say and what they needed the minerals for. We don't know why they couldn't get them at home. We don't know. We just know that's what our ancestors say happened. And there's some pretty strong evidence of what we would call prehistoric mining for gold in Southern Africa. And the dates of those mines go back about 200,000 years, back to a time when our ancestors were on the planet, people our shape and build and size, not quite as smart as we are apparently, not smart enough to know how to farm, but smart enough to work in someone else's mind. So there might be some very nuts and bolts answers like that. And we might be looking at visitors very similar to ourselves. You know, we invade each other's countries for the natural resources those countries have to offer us. Maybe we're looking at a colonization like that. The Sumerian stories, the biblical stories suggest a picture like that. But when you get into the abduction narratives, which I found impossible to avoid because I should say when I set out to write The Scars of Eden, it wasn't my ambition to write a book that had a lot in it about the abduction phenomenon because I know people struggle with it. And uh, I, I want to be taken seriously. So I don't want to be putting a stumbling block right at the beginning of my new book. But I found I couldn't avoid it. The moment you listen with respect to what our ancestors talked about, the abduction phenomenon is absolutely central to what they have to tell us about our place in the cosmos. Why? Why would other beings come here and hybridize with human beings? Well. Genesis 6 says it happened because our visitors found human beings very attractive. They saw the human females and they said, let's have some of that in our gene pool. It's not hard to believe that there might be something unique about human beings. We go back to the idea of panspermia, which would suggest there are beings similar to us on similar planets. But maybe there's something unique about the fusion of animal strength, mammal emotion, and higher consciousness that makes up human beings, that makes us very attractive to our neighbors. I have formed the view that we have some neighbors that don't have the same emotionality that we have, and they find it attractive. I have come to the conclusion we have some neighbors who don't have the robust physicality that we have, and they find it attractive. I think there may be species that are on the decline in terms of the information of their gene pool, and they need to enrich it. For whatever the reason, they want some of what we have in their genetic mix. 
And I started hearing that story uh, the moment I sat down with my parents-in-law to warn them about this controversial new book, Escaping from Eden, that was coming out. They're devout Christians. They're from Ghana. I thought they might find my thesis a bit confronting. But when I sat down and explained it to them, they said, Paul, we already know this story. You know, Ghanaians are, are brought up, they're taught the Christian story, they're taught the modern scientific explanations, but there's also a knowledge that is in the folklore of the country that speaks of a non-human presence sharing the planet with us who occasionally abduct humans in order to hybridize with them. Well, I was, I'd never heard this and then my mother-in-law said, we're actually very close to another family that had this experience where their daughter was taken for three years and was used in this hybridization program. Well, you can imagine how my jaw dropped when I heard that. And that sent me on another journey around the planet to realize the same testimony is there told by the people of Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa. You can follow the story all up the Western seaboard of Africa into the Caribbean, Brazil, Haiti, Cuba, tell the same story. As far east as the Philippines, where they have vocabulary that exists only to tell that story. That vocabulary has its roots in India, which suggests the story may be there too. You go into Europe and you'll find the whole of Europe is named after an abductee. Europa was the daughter of a king of Phoenicia, who was abducted by a non-human entity and she produced three hybrid children. One of them was Minos, the progenitor of the ancient Minoan culture. Now in Greece, that's taught as history, not as fable, but as history. And the whole of Europe is named after that story. Go into the Norse countries, the same story is there. And then I found I'm part Celt, and I find that the Welsh tell the same story. And the details that correlate are phenomenal. So the friend of the family, the details in that story were that she was taken from the beach, from near water. She was taken to an underwater base where she was held for three years. She was made to have children. She came back healthier than when she went away. And the people who held her looked similar to human but were not human. Every one of those notes is told in the Welsh story of Tilworth Tech. The Scottish have similar stories, the Irish have similar stories, and it's such a bizarre story. It doesn't co correlate with any human pattern on the planet. And yet every culture around the world, Alaskans would tell you the same story. The correlations are so precise that you have to stop and think what is going on that our ancestors are telling us about, and if, it's a memory of something real. Why is it happening? And I think the why is what I talked about, that we have something that our neighbors need. So some are here for the planet, some are here because of us, and some of here might be here for reasons we couldn't possibly understand. But there would appear to be a whole plurality of demographics with a plurality of agendas. And our ancestors say they often conflict with one another as they confer over what should be happening on planet Earth. And just before Christmas, we heard from Haim Ashed, the former chief of space security for Israel, a brigadier general who held that position for 27 years. And he spoke of an intergalactic federation that is involved in human affairs, 
that is in contact at a covert government level but has chosen not to self-disclose. And the moment you're using that language, which is an utter repeat of what our ancestors said, you know you're in the arena of conflicting agendas and we have to start drilling down and asking, well, what are they? And can we now have a place at that table, please, and have a part in that conversation? Absolutely. And, you know, it's also in the American government, too, how they've actually petitioned the militaries to they had 180 days to come up with all of this disclosure information. You know, we've seen the pyramid, the pyramid uh, shaped ship that they've shown the public. Now, I have my you know what I think is going to happen, but what do you think is going to happen when they bring this information to the forefront? Do you think we're going to get some kind of hard disclosure or is it going to be a very fluffy, like, here's some stuff, but not really. And I mean, we could talk about them in Vietnam. We could talk about all these different areas where these sightings have occurred. You know, what do you think is going to happen? Well, disclosure is always a blend of declassification and cover-up. Uh, we're never going to get the whole story. There'll always be a blend. So, you know, documents will be declassified. That's great. What were the ones that weren't declassified? Or documents are declassified. Oh, that's great. What are the redacted bits? So there will always be a blend. It'll always be managed. And I think the whole reason we're in a kind of a soft disclosure era is because our governments want to avoid a big percussive moment of now we're going to tell you the truth. And it's interesting the way this declassification has been framed, that government is petitioning military to disclose their information. That's sort of how it's being framed. We would like a briefing from the Pentagon, please. So the pattern is that government is in the clear because they're asking for declassification. If you see what I mean, I hope I'm not being too cynical here. No, no. But we are in an interesting place. The reason I think it's a place of soft disclosure is that in the past, people who spoke on these topics would often find themselves threatened. If witnesses came forward from, well, take what happened at Roswell, death threats over witnesses and their spouses and their children and grandchildren to silence what happened there, except now they can speak about it. In 1966, there was a mass sighting in Melbourne, Australia, and the school children who witnessed it were threatened in the strongest terms that they must not speak about what they saw. Well, now they can go on national television and talk about it. Now we can have Haya Meshed make a statement like that. Now the late Ed Mitchell could campaign for declassification of America's contact with ET demographics without being, you know, polished off somewhere. Now Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev can say we are in contact with a number of species and each successive Prime Minister of Russia is given the document saying who we're in contact with. Now we can hear from the former chief of French intelligence talking about the investigation of UFO crash retrievals. We can hear from the former head of the um, Pentagon body that researched those materials. We can hear from physicists like Eric Davis and Jacques Vallée who are researching those materials. We can hear from Chris Mellon, 
the former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush. And what's interesting about all those people is they are just one degree removed from the person in authority making an official declaration. You know, the former Assistant Secretary of Defense, the former Chief of Space Security, so on and so forth. That's really close, and we've not seen that before. And this um, Senate briefings is kind of the same pattern. It's one degree removed. It's government saying, give us a briefing, please. Now, what will be in those briefings? I don't know. What's already out there is mind-blowing because we have now an acknowledgement of off-world vehicles not made on this earth, to use the exact form of words. We've got an acknowledgement from US defense that we've been engaging for decades with craft we can't keep up with, we don't understand, we don't know where they're from. And we've gone back to the pre-1947 policy of acknowledging the phenomenon and saying we don't know what it is. So even what's happened in the last four years since the New York Times broke with the story of the Tic Tac encounters, there is a lot in the public domain that ought to be waking everybody up to the fact that we've got company. And it may be that the Senate briefings will just put a little bit more detail on that, but in effect, we'll just re-authenticate all that stuff. And even if they release more files, more cases, it will just re-emphasize that same picture. I doubt very much it will go as far as saying we have had diplomatic relations for 70 years. And that's really the next piece of the puzzle. So uh, however much more volume there is of declassified encounters, I think it will just be a repeat of what's already in the public domain, namely that there's been engagement with ET technology. You and I can guess it goes a lot further than that. I don't think we'll be hearing that. Yeah, I agree with you on that 110%. Now, you do a lot of work with people who have uh, had these encounters with extraterrestrials. Do you want to go into that a little bit and how you help these people? Absolutely. This was a big part of why The Scars of Eden was written, because as soon as Escaping from Eden was published, I began hearing from people on a weekly basis, most weeks it's every day, from people who've had experiences that have dislodged them from the mainstream stories. And so I'd hear from people who had had close encounters uh, and others who had seen things in their ancient texts, very often preachers and theologians who saw things in the text and then had nowhere to go with their questions. And it's a taboo topic, so where do you go? One of the biggest demographics I've heard from is veterans of war, and in particular, veterans of the 2003 invasion of Iraq. And I've heard from people who went in believing they were going for the public reason, to save the Kurds, to um, wrest from the control of Saddam Hussein weapons of mass destruction, um, to affect regime change, to stabilize the region. They thought they were laying their lives on the line for those reasons, but when they got there, they found that their particular unit had a different mission. And the mission of their unit was an archaeological mission to retrieve certain artifacts and take them from Iraq to America, where they could be 
used, investigated, analyzed. And that realization was profoundly disturbing to lay your life on the line and realize that it's for something you're not allowed to know about that has nothing to do with these public military objectives. Well, so who are you risking your life for? What is it for? Why are we not allowed to know? Well, obviously, they came back wanting to know what had all been about, and their questions took them very quickly to the Mesopotamian texts, because these artifacts were clearly connected with humanity's most ancient stories of origins. And those are the ones told on the ancient cuneiforms of Babylonia, Sumeria, Arcadia, and Assyria. So what do they say? And so often these veterans of war would go there, and those questions would then lead them to the Fifth Kind TV, or to the Paul Wallace channel, or to Escaping from Eden. And from there they think, I have to process what I saw, what happened to me. And so I find my conversation uh, often is with people like that. And it was really a sense of compassion towards these people and what they had had to wrestle with that I thought, well, this is a story that needs to stay on the table for public conversation. We need to be asking questions. What was found? What were the implications? What happened to the find of Gilgamesh's tomb? What was the technology we were taking away from out of Iraq? These are, these are very far-reaching questions. Other groups that I hear from are from people who have had a close encounter and they've had no one they can talk to about it because of the ridicule factor that surrounds aliens and ETs. And often I hear from people who will say something like this, I had an experience when I was 15 years old. It changed my life. I have talked to my wife about it. I have talked to the person I was with at the time, but I haven't told another living, breathing soul in the 50 years since it happened. But I need to talk to someone because I need to process what it was and what it means. And so a lot of my coaching that I do is with people who are processing those experiences or reframing their whole worldview or their faith as they come to terms with what happened to them. Interestingly, I have a, um, I don't want to give any names away, but I'm in touch with a pastor in the UK, a priest in the Church of England, and they've been involved in diocesan ministry to the paranormal teams. Now, every diocese in the Church of England will have a team that is dedicated to paranormal ministry. And what that usually means is entity removal, exorcisms, deliverance ministry, that kind of thing. <clears throat> they've been involved in these teams. And in the last two dioceses where they worked, they've gone to the team leader, who's usually the bishop, and they said, I have had to respond to a number of parishioners who've had close encounters. They've reported close encounters with ETs. How do we respond to that? We need to develop a pastoral response and a theological response. And the bishop has said, yes, you're absolutely right. Please never mention that again. And so where do you go then? How do you process that? And so I am in contact with people like that, having conversations like that. And so a lot of my coaching is with people who are doing that kind of reframing, trying to work out what is the world we live in? How do I live in it? And it was a big part of what motivated me to write The Scars of Eden. And I do believe that far more people have had encounters 
than actually realize it. And in my book, I share some of my own experiences, which are not dramatic experiences. They're not like a Whitley Strieber or a Travis Walton story. My stories are something funny happened to me years ago. I'm uh, I'm not sure. I think we froze a little bit, but in the meantime, I mean, guys, this has been an incredible, incredible interview. Incredible interview. I'm not sure exactly what. And I'm not. Oh, there we go. It's just me now. I think we lost him, but I'm sure Paul will be back in a moment. I mean, this has just been top notch. There he is. He's kind of, he came back. There you are. You came back. So uh, the reason I tell these stories that sound like stories of nothing and puzzling over something I can't quite understand is that I think a lot of us are in that boat. And I don't think, I think if you sat down any friendship circle or family circle and said, do you have a story like that? Something funny that happened to you that you've never been able to get your head around. I think every circle would have a story and possibly every individual would have a story. You start listening to those stories and a coherent picture will begin to emerge. And it's a picture that tells us we're not alone on this planet or in this corner of the cosmos, and we can begin to think through the implications of that. And I think if we can listen to one another in that kind of way, with respect, without ridicule, then all of a sudden we're part of a grassroots wave of disclosure, and we're not just sitting waiting for governments to make official statements for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. We actually have another question from Watchers Talk Again, which is Omar. And he says, I'd like to hear about the Mimi Wada. What do you Mami, know about that? Yeah. Mami Wada. Yeah, I'm saying it wrong. Probably. Yeah. Well, that is the story I heard from my parents-in-law when I sat down and told them about escaping from Eden. And they said, we have a family very close to us that had this experience. When they talked about that girl who was taken from the beach in Anloga, in the Kita district of the Volta region of Ghana, taken for three years, used for hybridization. The name they used for that phenomenon was the Mamiwata people. And it is a modern name for the ancient way of, the ancient story that the Ghanaian people have curated of a non-human presence involved in hybridization. Now, different names are used by different cultures so i mean you go to the philippines and it'll be the um lamandagats the uh dili ingonato you go into celtic countries and you will hear stories of fairies and you hear that word and you might think what are we talking tinkerbell here is this are we in the world of disney all of a sudden no you read those stories on their own terms and you will realize, just as Robert Hartland said in the 1800s, and as Robert Kirk said in a book published in the 1600s, the fairy stories of the Celtic people are stories about a non-human presence involved in abducting humans for hybridization, a presence that is very powerful and seems to have its claws in human geopolitics around the world. And I think 
you know, we're taught to ridicule those stories, which is why the word fairy sounds so ridiculous in the 21st century and why some laugh if you use the label Mammy Water. But you listen to the action of the stories and the correlations around the world, and it's something dead serious we're being told. That's that's wild, too, just to think about it as a whole, you know. And, and this, like I keep going back to the fact that all these cultures have so many similarities within, you know, they, people say myths or their ancient ancient uh, scripture that is documenting these histories, you know. So one of the things I also wanted to ask you, too, is that, you know, you've been a part of church and a trained pastor for 30 years or more than 30 years. What kind of reception did your work have, you know, amongst the religious people, the people of faith? You know, I mean, I'm sure it was a up and down or trials and tribulations of bringing this forward. Yes. Uh, well, a spectrum of responses. On the whole, I have been blown away by how positive the engagement has been with Escaping from Eden and the Scars of Eden. And so I hear from senior church people, active pastors, retired pastors, trainee pastors, who will contact me and say, thank you so much for putting this on the table, because I've been wrestling with this pastorally, theologically, you've named it, now we can talk about it, you've affirmed my own thinking, and we need to discuss this so badly. And I'm thrilled when I get responses like that. And if you go to Amazon and you look at the reviews for The Scars of Eden, you will see a couple of theologians in there who have weighed in and said essentially that. I hear from others uh, on our channel, uh, The Fifth Kind TV on YouTube. Very often people will come into the comments on those documentaries and the conversation will start, this is blasphemy. You're luring people to the pit of hell with your false doctrines, blah, 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 blah. You know, even those people, about 80% of the time, if I reply, and I always like to get into conversation, if I reply and I say, thank you so much for your comment, um, the reason I'm saying this is this, and I'm not out here to debunk the Bible. I really am seeking to understand it. And my logic is this. That's how I get to these conclusions. 80% of the time, after a couple of exchanges, we're the best of friends, uh, wishing each other well. There's still that, you know, 20% who are very, very unhappy with me. And then there are others who, very disappointingly, simply refuse to listen to me or read my book. And so I have long-standing friends and colleagues who just won't read the book because they don't want to consider the questions that I'm considering. They don't want to be rattled by it. I did an interview a few months ago on um, the Age of Truth TV, interviewed by Lucas Alexander, and I put up a promotion for it on my FB wall, and two clergy, I won't name them, but two Australian clergy came onto my page and the conversation began something like, what kind of shit fest is Paul Wallace serving up for us now? And they did that without listening, without watching, without reading the book. They just looked at that um, picture of me talking with Lucas Alexander, and that was the response. And I have no respect for that. I'm quite happy for people to disagree with me or laugh at me or ridicule me, but do it because of what I'm saying. Do it because you've read it 
and you take issue with it. I'm more than happy to have those conversations because at least we're discussing the ideas. But there's still such a taboo and such a fear. And when I get that from people who are supposedly leading faith communities and teaching people how to think and explore, well, I don't know what to think. So that there's a little bit of that in the spectrum as well. But for the most part, the engagement has been really encouraging and exciting and people are welcoming new books that are putting this on the table for mainstream conversation once again. Well, that's that's great to hear because it means that that people are really opening up to to these ideas, you know. And there are there is this trend that people go out there and instead of actually like going against what the people are saying with factual evidence or some kind of intellectual conversation to back it up. They go straight to this name calling or you're just flat out wrong and I don't have to explain myself, which is so it's so lazy. It's so lazy. You know, I'm like I like to classify myself as a forever student. So even if these people come with a different. Yeah, it's just, you know, I, I think you kind of feel the same way. If they come with some kind of different dialogue, I'll hear it out because maybe, you know, there's something in there that I can take away from that conversation. And that's like every time we do shows, we tell people, don't take our word for it. Go and look everything up because when you look it up, you're actually going into this intellectual mode and your brain looks at things from different angles. And this conversations can happen, uh, you know, with a, with a discourse that's polite and, and filled with information. And we learn from each other, even if it's just a human condition, you know, Definitely. And I've been so enriched by these conversations because often I'll hear from people who say, well, thank you for what you're saying. By the way, you spelt that word wrong. Thank you. I'll get that right in the book. Or they'll come in and they say, thank you for sharing that. You might not know about this story from the Philippines. Or let me tell you what I learned in initiation in South Africa. Or did you know the Edo narrative of Nigeria? Do you know what the Yoruba people say about this or the Epic people? And people come and they lay down my new syllabus of what this I do need to know about. And getting into conversation like that is phenomenal. The power to internationalize our conversation through uh, media like this is absolutely phenomenal. And I love the fact that I've been able to travel the world and hear from so many cultures because people have done me the favor of contacting me and saying, I know something you don't know. Can I share my information with you? And my answer is always, yes, please. Because like you, I'm a forever student and I'm a writer as well. So I'm going to study, I'm going to learn, and I'm going to share the journey as I go along. Of course, you know, and and that's one of the things that I love is all the work that people put out there. You know, people take things away from it. With all of your work, what is the one thing or the multiple things that you want people to take away from reading these books? I think that once you realize that our stories of origins is different, it leads very quickly to realize that the story of our potential is different to what we've thought. And many of these ancient narratives that talk about our engineering in the distant past talk about higher cognitive abilities that we used to have that have been downgraded or or, or put into the off position. Those same cultures all have methods and modalities for switching them back on, whether they're shamanic or mystical uh, or purely intellectual. 
they all talk about learning to be more intelligent, more conscious, and living a better life individually and as a society because of it. So the scars of Eden and escaping from Eden ultimately lead to that territory of how can I live differently in the light of this information? How can I live better, more healthily, more informed, more conscious, using more of my untapped cognitive abilities than I've ever done before? And that's a really exciting part of the journey for me. Absolutely. You know, I feel like right now we're on this precipice. If this was a wave, this would be this crescendo of the wave where people are essentially waking up to this new information. And it's it's going in a lot of different directions, like as if, you know, if this was the ocean and a wave is crashing down, the current will pull you in a specific direction. But I feel like it's manifesting out into so many different areas and aspects of our life that we're really we're starting to get this idea of what it is to try and be a higher you know living in a higher existence or a higher frequency so you know i think that that's one of the great things about exploring all this stuff too and let me ask you this question too which is kind of a, a difficult question to, for me to ask but you know now that you've gone through all of this catholic, uh, catholic type of faith for so long and now coming into this information how do you still maintain what you feel? Is it still fall within the Catholic faith? Or do you think that you've, I don't want to say surpassed it, but do you incorporate certain aspects of Catholicism as well as your own understanding of the spiritual aspects of what you're looking at? Well, first of all, for me, it's Catholic with a small c because I, I was actually an Anglican and a Pentecostal rather than a Roman Catholic. But it's the same basic Orthodox Christianity that I was part of for a long time. And certainly, my research has required me to reframe a whole lot of my beliefs. But the end of the reframing for me is that it has altered my concept of God to something a bit more cosmic. I now realize that that cosmic vision is there in the writings of the Apostle Paul. I just sort of slightly missed it. It's there in the writings of Plato. Plato had a God concept, and for him, it was the cosmic source. And when he talked about the cosmic source, he said in the beginning was consciousness, and that consciousness then fractalized to create the material universe, and the material universe exists in order for consciousness to express itself. Now, people who read that centuries ago would say, oh, that's very weird and airy-fairy and vague. Now, now that we've got the language of panspermia, well, that's just a nuts and bolts way of saying what Plato said, that the genetic coding for biological conscious life has been disseminated. Whenever it lands in a hospitable environment, it'll result in conscious life. That's the unpacking of that idea that Plato was talking about. And I believe that now we have quantum research saying that consciousness shapes material phenomena. So these things kind of join up and finesse each other, which I find really intriguing. The Apostle Paul spoke in very similar language when he was speaking <clears throat> to an audience that didn't know anything about Hebrew religion and his background in that or the Hebrew idea of God. What the Apostle Paul said to this audience in Athens was, by God I mean the source of the cosmos <clears throat> and everything in it, that which that in which we all live and move and have our being. And that's a cosmic vision that I 
can take seriously. And uh, I find a lot of people can, can deal with that kind of a concept. It's also reframed my thinking about Jesus because my research has now revealed that things I thought were totally unique and exclusive to Jesus's story turn out to be part of a much wider story. The story of his life absolutely mirrors the hero's journey as mapped out by Plato, who says we are consciousness, then material beings, then consciousness again. Well, that's the story of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Um, the fact that there are stories of anomalous pregnancies, star children, indigo children in every culture around the world from time immemorial to the present day. Well, clearly the story of Jesus's conception fits within that. My research shows that his story, John the Baptist's, um, Isaac's in the Bible, they're all based on each other and they are tellings of close encounters with extraterrestrials. And they absolutely mirror the story of Lao Tzu, for instance, the Yellow Emperor, the Pasi Buddha, the 22nd incarnation of Buddha before Siddhartha Gautama Buddha. It's a much, much bigger picture. And so, yes, my theology has shifted. Things are reframed, but for me, it's enriched the picture. My sense of connection with God is uh, more profound and more intimate than ever. So I don't feel that I have lost my bearings in the world or lost a sense of theology or connection with God, but it has reframed a lot. And it takes a while to do that reframing. And that's another reason people come to me for coaching, because they just need a bit of a handhold through that whole process. It's not something you can just switch around just like that. And very often people will begin by reacting, denial, and then they go into bargaining. Can I massage this worldview into this worldview? And then they realize they can't and they'll get to an acceptance. And then there's this deflating moment of depression of, well, do, do I know anything now? And then you have to move forward and say, I'm on a learning journey. And it could only be good to be on a learning journey. Uh, you know, I went through very, very similar type of thing where I was raised Roman Catholic and finding this information, you know, a lot of people say to me, well, what do you think of, of God now? And I said, well, God is, is ultimately a being of my understanding. And that's, you know, it's my higher power. Everybody's suit for their own understanding of what God is to them. And, and, you know, I, I, I commend it. That's amazing. That's amazing. And then the fact that you're helping people through it is ultimately, you know, you giving back to people who have been abductees and finding their way back to their higher power is such it's it's amazing work. And, you know, it's such admirable work. And I commend you for all of that, because I really think that that's important to help and pay it forward and give back to people and do this and do, and do anything you can to really help somebody. So. Well, you know, coming up on my last question for you is what's next for Paul Wallace? Well, it will be July when I start uh, working on the sequel to The Scars of Eden, if, if I recognize the process I'm in. And where I'm going to go next is to ask the question, what other information was buried along with our ancestors' knowledge of ET contact? And in particular, I'm going to follow the trails that have been laid for me by friends who have gone through initiation in African cultures. And at that point, they're provided with the secret information. 
of their cultures, the knowledge of our place on the planet and in the cosmos, and follow the paths laid for me by my Australian Aboriginal brothers and sisters and my Native American brothers and sisters, because they have very carefully maintained this other body of information, not only about our ET roots, but about who we are right now and how we live and thrive on planet Earth. So that's the territory I'll be exploring in the sequel to The Scars of Eden. Well, that's, uh, that's amazing. I'm actually, right now, we're uh, for Watchers Talk 7th anniversary, I'm going to be doing a presentation on Native American, um, basically, giants, myths, and, and gods, pretty much. It's going to be uh, hopefully extensive. I've just started it. But that's, you know, I'm, that's right up my alley. And I will definitely be purchasing that book as well. And, you know, as everybody knows, throughout the evening, I've been putting every place that you can find Paul, uh, his website, Fifth Kind TV, his YouTube channel, all of that was actually in the comments. So if you're looking for that, please go and check it out. Paul, I want you to, I'm going to give you, you know, a couple of minutes to say whatever you want to say at the end of the show. So just, you know, tell the people what you'd like. Find a closing, closing statements, pretty much. Well, I was uh, very lucky that I suffered my ultimate Frisbee injury because it just gave me the time to follow a couple of white rabbits that had grabbed my attention. And I found that people can come to this territory from all different start points. And if you can just allow yourself a moment, a weekend break, whatever it is, follow the white rabbit that interests you and you will find you end up in exactly the same rabbit warren <laughs> that we've been talking about today. Any white rabbit will get you there. But this really is an exciting time because not only can you follow your curiosity, but through platforms like yours, Rob, we can compare notes and find that we are all on a learning journey together and we inform and encourage one another. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I can't wait to compare notes again with you. Hopefully sometime in the near future, in the next few weeks or so, we'll have you come back and try and do a part two, explore more. And, uh, you know, I just want to thank you so much for coming on. It was truly an honor and a privilege to talk to you. I look up to you a lot, and this has been an amazing, an amazing moment for me to have you come through and and let me pick your brain, and we get to talk a little bit. So I, I appreciate you and everything that you do. Uh, and thank Rob, you, thank you. I, I love talking to you. I love the platform you've created. You've got an awesome voice, by the way. I've got to say that. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> and you, you're a wonderful, clear communicator. I would love to talk with you again. Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. And just for you guys who have made it to the end here, we will be doing a one year anniversary for this in July. And Paul, you are always invited. And I, I hope you come through so we can, you know, do a presentation or just just to talk, you know, just to shoot it back and forth. And like I said, I, I really, really appreciate you, man. And, and I look forward to seeing what you do in the future because my eyes will be on it for sure. For sure. Oh, thanks, Rob. It's much appreciated. Uh, thank you very much. I want to say thank you to everybody who is out there watching. Uh, we've been had a really strong audience the entire time, and uh, I appreciate every one of you. And I just want to let everybody know that I love all of you, and I'm with all of you always. If there's anything we can do to help you, please reach out. Um, and, yeah, I mean, this has been Full Spectrum Universe. Paul, I'll, get, I'll let you take us out. Thanks, Rob. It's been a great pleasure. Really look forward to next time with you. Excellent. Thank you, everybody. Have a good night.